Hello and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm Joey Ping, and on today's episode, you'll be hearing my conversation with David Busis. David runs our emissions consulting services, and since it's November, we talk all about emissions, personal statements, diversity statements, recommendation letters, and resumes. How to present the best version of yourself and maximize your chances of getting into law school. Please enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with David Busis, who heads up. Emissions Consulting at Seven Sage.、Uh, before we start, David, can I just get you to talk a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to listeners who don't already know you? Yeah, sure. So my name is David. I went to Yale College and then I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, but I also applied to law school and I got into Harvard and Yale and several other T fourteen schools and. I wanted to find a way to use my writing skills, and so I wound up helping other people with their applications. Four or five years later, I have learned as much as I could about the admissions process. I have hired people who have directed admissions departments and worked as admissions officers, and now this is what I do, and I love my job. Cool. Can you tell us more about、uh, your team? Roughly, what's what's their composition, their background? What makes Seven Sages Emissions Consulting Services different? Absolutely. So Seven Sage has a team of people who worked in admissions offices and professional writers and editors. I think the second part is what makes us different. A lot of other admissions consulting shops. Are staffed with people who worked in admissions offices, but who aren't necessarily trained to or experienced in writing and editing essays. For us, being a great writer is just a sine qua non of working here and being an effective admissions consultant. Because although we give our clients advice, at the end of the day. Like ninety-seven percent of the actual work we do is improving the essays and and making sure that everything on the page absolutely sings. Right. So let's say someone is considering emissions consulting services and they're trying to decide between our services and、uh, some other consultants who have who have say more background in emissions consulting. I, I think the rationale is. I'm going to go with people who have more、uh, background in emissions. Maybe they were emissions officers at、uh, law schools before they、uh, were,、uh, you know,、uh, emissions consultants. They certainly have looked at、uh, tons of applications.、Uh, they know how to pick out winners. All right. So, so like, I think from from a student's perspective, it maybe it makes sense to go with them as opposed to a team who has a, a writing heavy. Background. I don't think that you have to choose between people with a writing background and people with an admissions background. At Seven Sage, we have both, and we try to share knowledge. So, if a client is working with an editor and has an admissions question、uh, that goes into some wonkery, we will just forward it to somebody on the team who worked in an admissions office. Uh, that just happened today, right? Someone just said,、um, "Hey, Seven Sage, I don't know if I need to update schools because I got a new LSAT score. Will they see that automatically?" 
um, and we just ran it through one of our uh, former admissions officers, and she told us, yes, schools will see it, but at the same time, it's a great opportunity to update the school and reiterate your interest. I think the writing component, though, again, is what makes Seven Sage different, and that's really where the value proposition lies. Just because people have judged applications does not mean that they are necessarily good at putting together an application. So, for example, if somebody is a judge of Olympic figure skating, you know, they might be really good at noting whether a person stuck the landing or not, but that doesn't mean that they can do a triple axle or even teach someone else to do a triple axle. We make sure that people on the team have done triple axles themselves, which means that they're professional published writers, and also that they know how to teach doing that. Almost everyone on the team has taught writing or edited in some capacity and we try to give all of our clients the benefit of both that writing expertise and the admissions expertise do you think admissions consulting services or essay editing services do you think that is something that every applicant needs or uh, if not you know who do you think benefits most from services like that i feel like it's easier to say who doesn't benefit from it for one thing, I don't think that you should bother paying for our services if your LSAT score and your GPA exceed the median of the school you want to go to. So if you have a 177 and you know a 3.91 and you want to go to Northwestern or U of Chicago, you can hire us and we can probably help you put together a better, better personal statement, but you really don't need to. The other people who shouldn't hire us are those with unrealistic expectations. So definitely don't pay for admissions consulting if, in your mind, it's a bargain that will let you get into a T14 school. We cannot promise that you will, and we never do. The way that admissions consulting works is you're essentially competing against people with the same or similar numbers. So, you know, if you have that... If you have, say, a 166 and a 3.71, your file is going in a bucket with other people who have, you know, the same numbers. And if a school, let's say, you know, it's a school that's a little lower down on the list, um, maybe it's Brooklyn Law School, they want someone with, uh, you know, a 166 or they want to shore up their LSAT median, they might look in that bucket to admit someone with those numbers. And so you are trying to distinguish yourself from other people in the same cohort. And that's when your admissions essays come into play. But you're not going to leapfrog somebody who has both a better LSAT score and a better GPA, no matter how good your essays are. Right. Okay. So definitely not for people whose numbers are already stellar applying to schools. And you mentioned the uh, LSAT and GPA media above the medians, right? Not not the, I mean, clearly above the 75th percentile too, but uh, if their numbers are above right. the median, then you think it's a pretty safe bet and probably don't need uh, admissions consulting You know, it's services. never a safe bet because admissions offices are just bombarded with applications and like anybody in that position, they are looking for reasons to say no. So if you're unsure and if you're able to afford it, sure, go ahead and hire an admissions consultant to make sure that you dotted your I's and crossed your T's 
And also, frankly, to make sure that you don't come across as a jerk or something yeah. in your statement. That's very true. Actually, I, I recall um, having uh, worked with a student, this is years ago when I was running the pre pro bono program in New York, where the, the student had an exceedingly high LSAT score. We're talking like above 175. And we just thought that he would get in anywhere. Also really good GPA. So as a consequence, we, we didn't really pay much attention to their essay. And that came back to haunt us because um, he actually didn't get into most of, he didn't get into, I think, any of the T10. And it was only later that we had looked at the essay that we realized, yeah, wow, this essay really was bad. It was just like a poorly written essay. It, it kind of looked like it was an essay written for like a high school English class. So I think that's when I realized that, like you said, they are looking for reasons to say no because they have far more applicants with the right numbers than they have slots to accommodate those applicants. Right. I mean, I do a similar thing when I hire people, right? So, so I put out the call. I say I'm looking for such and such. A ton of applications come in. My first step is not to identify the most promising candidates. It's to identify the least promising candidates because that's much easier, right? You just push the reject button over and over and over again. And after you do that, you're dealing with a much more manageable subset of applications. I think a lot of admissions officers do the same thing. You know, that's why every year top schools are turning down people with 180s. If you have a 180, you have a decent shot of getting in anywhere, of course, depending on your GPA and your character and fitness issues. But it's certainly not a free pass. But when you do have really high numbers, I think that you should play defense. I, I think of it as yours to lose. The opposite is true, right, if you have um, below median numbers for a given school. I don't think that you should try something crazy because it's probably just not going to work. You know, do not, you know, in lieu of a personal statement, um, record yourself serenading the admissions committee. You're just <laughs> not going to get it admitted that way. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, you have maybe a little more leeway um, to take a risk to write about uh, a personal statement topic that, you know, could backfire because, frankly, you're probably not going to get in anyway. And so... Why not? Yeah. Why not throw a Hail Mary? So since we got on the topic personal statements, it is a general sentiment among applicants that this is like the worst part of applying. Some people have even said this is worse than studying for the LSAT. I, I know in my case, it might have been easier for you since you, you are a writer, but I remember in my case, I spent way too much time on my personal statement. It was like seven months um, because I like I just didn't know what to write. I came up with multiple drafts, multiple different stories. They all sucked, I thought. I even benefited from um, editing services that my undergraduate university offered for free. You know, they had a, a undergraduate writing center where graduate students in the writing program, in the creative writing program, would just offer free help for undergrads to bring in whatever piece of writing. So I, I benefited a lot from that. And it was it was with that very intensive guidance and editing that it finally was able to craft just like a two-page personal statement that, you know, so I ended up applying really late everywhere because it was just such a, a difficult process. And I know that sentiment is echoed by applicants today. So what 
I mean, do you have any advice, like big picture advice for how people can get started? Yeah. You know, when I start working with applicants on their personal statement, I ask them a series of prompts. And um, I think that I would recommend them to anyone. So I'll ask questions like, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? What are you most proud of? Uh, tell me more about your background. Tell me about a time you changed your mind or learned something or grew. What do you care about other than your friends or family? And why do you want to go to law school? Really, really think about that. Don't give me a glib answer. <laughs> that last one is going to be difficult. Yeah. I think I can tell you that I would guess probably half, maybe more than half of people don't have really good answers for that last one. But, right. but it's the idea that you give you give your client this list and what they just, it's like homework now. They just have to sit down and write a paragraph long response to each of those questions. Like the hardest thing I ever done was, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, the thing I care about most beside, aside from my family and friends uh, is whatever. You just fill in the list and just send it back to you. Yeah. So uh, have you ever done any free writing or are you familiar with the concept or some people call it automatic writing? I have a vague idea, but probably best to just let you explain it. Yeah. The idea is basically that you close your eyes and you let your fingers fly because writing is always sort of a back and forth between two processes. One is pure creativity. And when you do that, you just have to kill the editor in your brain and let anything go. Everything's a good idea. Um, and the other process is the opposite. It's, it's diligent. It's rigorous. It's not creative. It's looking skeptically at what you've written and throwing most of it out because most of it is going to be crap. Mm. But the brainstorming is purely the first process. It's purely creative. And if you just sort of type you know, type away, close your eyes, don't worry at all about grammar or punctuation, don't worry about sounding smart, don't worry if these are good ideas or not. If you just type, sometimes you can just bypass that skeptical editorial part of your brain and dredge up really good details from your unconscious that you wouldn't be able to access if you were thinking about it in a more analytic way. I've heard Maybe I might be making this up. Did somebody say, like, write drunk, edit sober? <laughs> is, that, is that a thing that professional writers actually say? Well, uh, unfortunately, there were a lot of drunk professional writers. So, uh, <laughs> you know, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, they did write sopping drunk. I don't know if it's advice that I would give, but I kind of understand it. You know, you can think of the free write as... Um, an exercise in self-induced, although not actual drunkenness. Right. You know, you just kind of want to act as if you're drunk and that you have absolutely no inhibitions. And again, later, that's when you can hit the reject button over and over again on the bad ideas. But for the time being, you don't want to give any quarter to that editor in your brain. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So you, you, you'll end up with something that's very long, very messy, possibly yeah. incoherent, but that's okay, right? That, that's fine. Absolutely, right. Because another, another technique for automatic writing is just to never stop typing, or if you prefer, never stop writing. You can also do it freehand. So yeah, you probably will end up with something that's an absolute mess, but that's okay. You need the mess. You know, that's sort of the raw clay that you 
shape and center and sculpt into something later. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I again, just a drawing on my distant memory of writing my own story. It's It was just like a raw mess of experiences and memories that didn't have a arc, a narrative arc, until it was until it was shaped into a story just like this happened that happened this happened i felt this way and and until like i was really forced through that tedious writing editing rewriting editing rewriting process to make it into a story that then i can look back and now it's like now i think back about the episode in my life or wrote about my personal statements like that's how i remember it now i mean that's that's the that's become like that's overtaken the the random uh, kind of disconnected memories and feelings I had, and now it's that narrative arc that that is um, that part of my life that happened in the past. Well, that's a really good point. I, I mean, it sounds like you actually went through a really great process, and the process that most of our clients go through too. It just maybe you indulged yourself and took too long, <laughs> but. Yeah. But what you were going to say is interesting because, of course, you know, life doesn't happen in clean narrative arcs. All stories are artifice. You hear someone tell a good story and you think, oh, it must have happened like that. But, of course, it, it didn't happen like that, right? Life is totally stochastic, and it's only in the process of recalling it and um, usually conveying it to someone else or at least conveying it to ourselves that we shape it and we form it and we give it meaning and we say, oh, this was the beginning and this was a moment that something changed and here's where I am now. Yeah, that is that is something I hear uh, a lot, you know, in, in terms of, uh, that, that's the advice that I hear a lot for uh, writing a good, effective uh, personal statement. So you gotta, something has to be different. From, uh, compare the beginning to the end, so, something has to have changed in you. Um, like, why does that make for a compelling, effective personal statement? I think, <laughs> I think that's maybe just the definition of a good story or a meaningful story. If something happened to you but nothing changed, who cares, right? If you stubbed your toe, okay, something happened. But if you didn't learn anything from it, then there's no point in relating it. Um, so it's, it's the change that gives it meaning. The change can mean that you changed your mind or your attitude, or it could just mean that you matured a little bit and grew. Sometimes you don't even understand what the lesson of the story is until you start writing about it. The occasion of writing an essay is a perfectly legitimate occasion to do some reflection. Yeah. Okay. Or I suppose the uh, related question would be, why do you suppose emissions officers care or are they trying to get us to do that? or That's a good question. So first of all, I'm not sure that admissions officers are phrasing this uh, to themselves in the same terms. I'm not sure that they are sitting down and saying, okay, let's look at the essays where something changes. Mm. Um, I, I think that probably you know, stories where something changes are just going to be better stories. Admissions officers are probably operating by the principle of, I know it when I see it. I know a good statement when I see it, and I also know it because I remember it. I just think that the statements that end up sticking with you are more often than not the ones that articulate a change. That's also a really good way to show that you're self-aware and that you grew and that you matured. 
Okay, that makes sense. That so it sounds like uh, the missions officers, from their perspective, they're just looking at a mass of data, right? They're just looking at numbers. They're looking at personal statements, recommendation letters, and they need to tell applicants apart that have similar numbers. If your numbers aren't there, you're already out of the running. But choosing between people who have similar numbers, they need to be able to recall. Like you've got to be the one that they remember, right? How do、yes. you do that? How do you, how、right. you do that is by Conveying a compelling narrative about that's just that's just like the way to get other people to remember you, right? Is that you are the、uh, girl、uh, that whatever your story is, right? Versus someone who has say a bland story where nothing much happens, and then the emissions officer can't quite recall what's so special about you. Right, I think that's true, and I actually think that a big source of anxiety for some applicants is that they think nothing ever happened to them. So, th- t- to be a little bit glib, they say, "Oh, these people who suffered enormous challenges because they are immigrants or they're refugees or they suffered grief—they're so lucky because now they have something to write about."、Um, <laughs> yeah, but of course, you really don't have to have gone through a challenge that everybody would. On the face of it, recognize as life-altering to write a good personal statement. It's all about how you tell the story, and some of the best personal statements I've ever read, sure, are about people who just went through unbelievable challenges and came out stronger. But others are about, you know, smaller, more internal challenges. I guess another way of saying this is that if your if your challenge was small and internal, you just have to shrink the canvas. Don't portray it as if it were something that everybody should be amazed by. Just portray it as what it was—something that was hard for you at the time—and put it in perspective. I'm thinking of one of the best essays I've ever read, which was about、uh, a writer's struggle with depression when she was ten. And the, the personal statement sort of violates every rule, if there are any. It, it begins with an incident that happened in childhood. It's about her mental health. And yet, she just does such an amazing job of reflecting on it and telling us how、um, her encounter with depression shaped her worldview in a way that she carries forward through her adult life. That the essay is absolutely gobsmacking. It's spectacular, and she got into Stanford, so it it obviously worked. It wasn't just I wasn't the only person who thought that. Well,、mm, her numbers But, her numbers were obviously like fair for Stanford as well. Yeah, her numbers were also.、Uh, Uh, strong, but you know it wasn't a it wasn't a guarantee that she would get in. Right, there's no guarantee at Stanford. No, there's just, no guarantee. They reject everybody. But what I was going to say earlier is like you know I can think of two ways that you distinguish yourself, and they're usually not conscious choices because you're always trying to do this anyway. They're also not mutually exclusive. One is to write an essay that's just so good that the admissions officer can't forget it. The other is to brand yourself or sort of give yourself a hook. Um, for example, when I applied,、uh, I didn't really think about this explicitly, but I branded myself as the food guy. I wrote my personal statement about how I was writing a novel about、um, agriculture and food law, and how I lost my belief in the novel, and I ended up getting more interested in. The legal problems that I was fictionalizing, and I wanted to study them in real life. And then I also wrote my Yale 250 about an encounter with 
a butcher who was artisanal and came from a long line of boutique butchers. And then he had been hired by Hormel to make sausage for him, for them. And it sort of put him in a moral dilemma because he didn't know if he would be selling out. So, you know, both of those essays work together um, to show me as like, oh, yeah, here's the meat food ag law guy. Right. In, in your case, obviously, it, it worked out. I suppose there wasn't any chance of that that style of branding being over-branded. Like, there were, in your cycle, 100 food guys, right? I mean, that, that worked out. But there do, probably weren't. Yeah, right? there probably weren't. But do, do you suppose there, that strategy could backfire if you don't, if you don't strategize well, if you brand your... Like, what are some of the common... There must be, right? There must be some brands that are just overused and you should probably stay away from. I think there are. I mean, there are a ton of people, obviously, who say that they're interested in human rights or international law with a pretty fuzzy idea of what that means. And, you know, if I were an admissions officer, I would roll my eyes at somebody who wants to do human rights law, especially if they don't have a strong record of doing human rights extracurricular activities or volunteering while they were in college or afterwards. You mean like if it's just transparent from their application that um, they have a very vague understanding of what it is without, without, I mean, work experience would be great to back that up, right? Like if you actually worked uh, at the UN. If you work at, yeah, Amnesty International or the UN or something, that makes it a lot easier to pull off that essay. I think it's very hard to write an essay that's like, I took a trip, whether it was a volunteering trip or a mission trip or something like that, to a third world country, and I saw how people suffered, and it really <laughs> came, you know, it really fired me up. There, there are just so many essays that are like that. Yeah. I wonder if this is, so it's, it's funny you say that. I have to confess, that is, that kind of fits the uh, narrative of what my personal statement was about. Um, I wonder if, like, over time, that's become a saturated narrative versus, like, maybe when I was applying back in, like, 2007, perhaps that branding worked for me. Uh, I wrote about how I went to, um, I studied political science undergrad, and I went to a, a rural village in uh, China to study local level elections. So China's authoritarian, as everyone knows. Um, but what people don't know is that at the lowest level of the government, at the village level, uh, villagers actually participate in direct democracy. They elect their local village chiefs. So I wrote about how like, I just went and stayed for like a month and uh, witnessed, just actually witnessed the elections taking place. And uh, wrote wrote about wrote about that, which which now sounds kind of like, you know, I went to a really poor place, saw some stuff that was different from what I'm used to, and now I'm interested in in the law. Yeah, but I, you know, having said what I just said, I think you can make any essay work, and yours actually sounds pretty persuasive to me, uh, because an essay always lives or dies by the details. If you abstract enough, you see that, you know, there aren't that many different kinds of story, right? One kind of story is like, I, I've heard it said that there are two stories. Person goes on a journey or stranger goes to town. And that, that's <laughs> yeah. sort of true for, yeah. for personal statements, too. So, you know, for me to say that you should never write a law school personal statement about a trip and how it changed you would be as ridiculous as saying, Nobody should ever write a love story again because Shakespeare covered that in Romeo and Juliet. Right, right, right. You know, there, there's room for infinite variation 
Um, it's just that the bar is probably higher if you're trotting well-trod ground. It, it really can't seem superficial. But at the end of the day, it's always about sincerity. And so paradoxically, you know, the best way to brand yourself is really not to think about your brand, at least maybe not until the very end. Um, because if you do, it probably will come off as insincere and pandering. Um, so we, we've been talking about uh, personal statements, I think, this whole time. Uh, let's pivot and talk about an adjacent topic, uh, the diversity statement. What is, okay, maybe just broadly, what is a diversity statement and who should write a diversity statement? A diversity statement is an essay about your identity. Sometimes law school applications will identify a prompt as a diversity statement. They will say, if you would like to write a diversity statement, blah, 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 blah. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll have a prompt that says something like, if you think that your background or identity merits extra consideration or something like that, you can write about it. Sometimes they have no option for this at all. Sometimes they'll just say, if there's anything else you would like to tell us, go ahead and tell us in this addendum. I think of diversity statement prompts as coming in two flavors. One is the traditional flavor, and those prompts seem to specify that they want people who fulfill a, a conventional definition of diversity. Um, so we're talking race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, and maybe religion. The other flavor of diversity statement is loosey-goosey. Um, schools like Stanford or Berkeley seem to welcome statements from anyone, even if you don't meet these traditional definitions of diversity. You can talk about an experience or a background. And when that happens, the diversity statement more or less becomes a second personal statement. It should probably be a little bit shorter. It should probably focus a little bit less on why you want to be a lawyer and a little more on your identity. But again, it's basically just a second essay. Diversity statements are always optional, so you should only write them if you can really complement your application, complement spelled with an E, um, add something new, and if you can write a really strong one. If you can't, don't feel like you're going to be in trouble because it's going to look like you're not trying. It, it won't look like that. It's way better to submit an essay with just an awesome personal statement or sorry, it's way better to submit an application with just an awesome personal statement than to submit an application with an awesome personal statement and a mediocre kind of pushing it diversity statement. So that that's actually, that could backfire on you if your diversity statement is either not well-written or unnecessary. It really could because everything you send to the admissions committee that they don't demand is a presumption. It's a presumption that it's worth their time to read it, that they'll mm. think that it's important. Uh, so yeah. if, in fact, it's not important, you might irritate them. Right. Like, why did you waste my time making you read this? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, you're saying uh, for people who are considered, uh, who meet the uh, conventional definition of uh, diversity, like uh, race or ethnicity or sexual orientation, that for those people, probably they should write one. That's right. Okay. Sometimes sometimes you'll cover your diversity factors in your personal statement. And if you really have nothing else to say after that, I think it's okay not to write a diversity statement. But I would say that most people who meet the 
traditional definitions of diversity should probably write a diversity statement. Right. Okay. Um, and the format of it follows, uh, we, we can just rehash that conversation we had about personal statements on how to write a compelling diversity statement. Yeah. You should, of course, look at the law school applications prompt itself. That's always going to supersede what I say or what anyone else says. But I think the best way to do it is to um, write another narrative. With a diversity statement, it's probably a little bit more okay to write a somewhat disjointed essay that just covers factor one, factor two, factor three. Okay. I don't, I don't think that will necessarily violate the terms of what they're asking for. But on the other hand, I don't think it'll be as effective as a good story. Because what is as memorable as a good story? Almost nothing. That's true. Yeah, so it's the same reason why you want to write a compelling uh, personal statement, just to so that they were so that the AOs remember you. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Maybe uh, we can talk about one other thing. Uh, so in in the order, in rank order of importance, um, forget the numbers. Would you agree that personal statement is first, the diversity statement, if you have one, is second, and then recommendation letters third. I don't know if I would agree on that. I think it's really hard to say. I think that all of those things together form a, a sort of gestalt. I generally spend the most time on the personal statement because I think it is your best opportunity to say everything you need to say and to tell the strongest story. But maybe the way I would phrase it is that all of the other applicate all of the other components have veto power. So if you write a stellar personal statement but your recommendations are terrible, you know, it it might still sink you. If you write an okay personal statement and your recommendations are the best that the adcom has ever seen, that could sway them too. Um, they're all really important, but I guess my concession to what you're saying is I do think it makes sense to spend the most time on your personal statement and the second most time on your diversity statement. And unless the recommend, unless your recommenders are asking you to write the letter themselves, you aren't going to spend that much time uh, on the rec, except insofar as you have to cultivate the recommenders. Yeah, that does happen. How do you feel about that when a recommendation, when you when you ask a professor or employer uh, for a recommendation letter and they, you know, they're busy, they want to help you, uh, but they don't want to spend the time to write the letter and they just ask you to write it yourself. What, what, do, you, what do you say to clients who are in that uh, situation? Well, I hate it. I think it's crappy, but I think it's also just a reality that's becoming more and more common, and I usually just bow to it, and I say, okay, do it. At least it's an opportunity to get very specific. One thing that you know you, know you can control is um, you can put in lots of anecdotes, which your employer or supervisor might not take the time to add. Mm. Yeah, and those anecdotes are what makes the uh, recommendation letter I mean, ironically credible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it is ironic if you're the one who's writing it yourself. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, a good recommendation letter also falls into the category of I know it when I see it. Right. Asha uh, Raganapa, who used to be, I think, the assistant dean of admissions at Yale, had a blog called Ask Asha, which is still really popular. And she had a post once where she spoke about some of the best recommendations she's ever read. And... 
this isn't exactly right. You know, I'm quoting from memory, but one of them was something like, uh, applicant X is the fifth person for whom I've written a recommendation letter. Persons one through four were already admitted to your school. Applicant X puts them to shame. You know, and like maybe it, that was like maybe the entire letter. That's done. That's a and done that deal. was very effective. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, there's always it. Anytime you give a rule for writing and probably for applications, you know, there's a meta 80 20 rule. The rule is right 80 percent of the time and 20 percent of the time. It's just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. How do you tell people uh, to what's your advice for students seeking recommendation letters? It's often like a very difficult ask. Again, speaking from personal experience, I remember it was hard for me to ask professors to write a letter for me. It felt, I don't know how best to say this, it just, it felt like I was promoting myself. I just, you know, I don't find that to be like the most, I find that to be slightly distasteful. Um, like I already, t I took a class, maybe multiple classes, I got good grades. It's like, talk about how good I am because I want to get into this law school. Yeah. You know, like, totally. I don't, you know. Well, as an applicant, I can definitely relate. That to me is the ickiest part of the entire process and really of applying to anything. I also hate asking for recommendations. On the other hand, I was a professor in an, as an adjunct at Iowa for three years. And, you know, I know lots of academics. And so I can tell you, professors don't look at it the same way. They know that it's just part of the job and they're really used to it. Many of them will have a sort of template that, you know, they can use and then plug in your specifics. So they are probably not looking at you with loathing and dread when <laughs> you come to their office hours. Yeah. Uh, and ask for the recommendation. Right. I mean, maybe they are, and that's just someone that <laughs> you might want to say thanks, but no thanks. I think I'll actually find someone else. But but most of them just understand that it's part of the job. I, I've heard it said somewhere, I can't recall where I saw this, but I heard it said somewhere that if you're asking for a recommendation, you should just be direct and ask, do you think you can write me a good recommendation? That is my advice, too. I think that it's really refreshing, but this is partially just my taste. You know, when someone is asking me for a recommendation, I do not want to read through 400 words of butt kissing and small talk. I would love it if you just said like, hey, David, hope everything's going well. I'm writing to ask you for a recommendation for law school. I totally understand that you're busy and I will completely understand if you can't do it. But if you think you can write me a strong one, I'd be very grateful for your time and I'd love to set up a quick conversation so I can tell you more about my career ambitions or whatever. Oh, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> I feel like that that would be an email that I would spend at, like at least an hour just not knowing how to write. Well, it also depends on your relationship with the professor, right? You never want to take it for granted that they'll like you but if you're chummier with them you have a little more leeway like if you go to go to office hours right. you, you know you got a good grade and you know they right. like you they like it when you raise your hand and speak up in class what one of my recommendation letters was really easy um and it was because i took two classes with this professor and i was uh his 
um, research assistant for two years uh, through the work study program at, at my undergrad. So that that was just a strong relationship that I felt like very comfortable asking for. But the others were, were kind of difficult for me to ask for. And what do you what do you suppose you you can say to what do you suppose you say to students who have been out of, out of school for a while and have lost touch with their professors? That's tough. So it's always worth it to try to reconnect. I'll tell them reach out if you still have any connections. Um, acknowledge the fact that it's been a long time, but you know the the purpose of that initial email is just to test the waters and see if they remember you, see if they're enthusiastic, see if they are amenable to the idea of having a conversation with you, something like that. If not, no harm, right? You don't you haven't lost anything. You weren't in touch anyway. If it turns out that you can't get a good recommendation from any of your old professors, I would just say take heart and know that admissions officers will understand that too. This, this is very common. And, um, you know, if you've been in the workforce for 10 years, they're probably not going to penalize you for not being able to get an undergraduate recommendation. Some people end up taking classes later just for the purpose of getting a recommendation. Um, you know, I, I guess if you have the time to do that and the foresight to do that, sure, go ahead and do it. But I don't think that's necessary. I think that you should just focus on getting really strong professional recommendations. So I think the last big component of the application is the resume. And we haven't talked about that at all. Is there something you like to uh, tell people about the resume? Sure. The resume has a paradoxical or sort of oxymoronic importance. It's often the first thing that admit that an admissions officer will read, and it might color the way she reads the rest of your file, but she might only spend 30 seconds on it. So I think the first thing that you have to know is that she is going to do the luge through it, and it, should, it needs to be scannable. I don't think it's a good idea to pack as much as you can um, to make the margins 0.2 and to write in a nine-point font and to add seven bullet points for every activity. For one thing, I, I think this sort of touches on the issue of presumption again. You know, Was your marketing internship in Sweden really so formative and important that you need six bullet points to convey all your duties? Probably not, at least not from the perspective of somebody who is working in an admissions office. It might have been really important to you at the time, and if so, maybe that's something you should write your personal statement about. But you don't, you're not going to get points by listing every single thing that you did there, because the admissions officer probably isn't going to read every bullet. When I read resumes, uh, when I'm hiring people, I scan them. I'm just trying to get a sense of what they've done. I will dip in and out. I'll read a bullet here, a bullet there. And so really, if you're cutting a bullet point, you're not losing an accomplishment. You're just redirecting the reader to something that's more relevant. Yeah, that's a good way to think about that. Like everything on the page is competition for the reader's attention. It is, exactly. So I think, I think a lot of problem, uh, a lot of undergrads have the uh, problem of maybe not having enough to put on their resume. Like they just, as, I mean, especially for people who go straight through to law school. 
like not having done what like what kind of things are important to include if you've never had uh, a full-time job in that case you want to list every extracurricular that you do or at least if you've done you know if you've done 20 extracurriculars you don't want to list all of those you want to list the important ones but you certainly want to convey to the admissions committee what you're doing when you're not studying for class or going to class you can also include a personal section in which you list some interests or hobbies, the languages that you speak, um, maybe some skills, although please don't tell us that you're proficient in Microsoft Office because, first of <laughs> all, almost everybody lists that. And second of all, most of the people who say that probably aren't actually proficient in Excel, <laughs> which is like the only one that actually requires proficiency. So yeah, take that out of your resume. What else? You can put, you know, you can put study abroad programs. Sometimes people include on their resume a bullet point to explain a gap in employment. I, I think that you often want to write an addendum if you've been out of the workforce for a year or something, but um, it's not a terrible idea to um, add a bullet, say, in a personal section to explain that you know, you were doing such and such or taking care of family for such and such a year because, you know, if they notice that there's a gap on your resume, it's nice if the answer is also there on the right, resume. Right, right. So there's no guesswork. Uh, I think we covered somewhat in depth uh, all the big components of uh, an application. Yes, those are the components that are common to every application. Then many applications often have idiosyncratic short answer questions or supplemental essays. Um, is there anything else? Um, is there anything else you'd like to say to 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 an applicant who is currently, you know, more or less freaking out about uh, what about their applications? Sure. I think my biggest overriding piece of advice is to be honest. I think that you know, unfortunately, if you listen to people like me, if you listen to other admissions professionals, you can get in this mindset of like, oh, what are the tips and tricks? How am I going to game the admissions committee? You know, what's the, what's the secret password that I need to say? <laughs> what's the formula that I need to follow in my resume yeah. to guarantee admission? And the truth is that good applications come in many different shapes and sizes, and the ones that stand out are just the ones that feel like they mean it, the ones that feel like they came from a human being, not a law bot, not an admissions professional, um, and that feels sincere. That's really refreshing to know. That 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 actually even puts me at ease <laughs> to know that that's still that's still true out in the world. It is true. Yeah, it matters most, and so you know, it helps if you're a great writer, even. But I would say even that is not the most important part. the The most important part is just that it feels real. Well, on that note, uh, David, thank you so much for your time. This has been so helpful. I've I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you again. And if people want to get in touch with you, how what's the best way to do that? Um, if you want to get in touch, you should visit Seven Sage, and you can either tag me in a discussion forum, or if you want to, you can email editors at sevensage.com. Great. Thank you. All right. So if you guys are applying, I wish you good luck. Hi there, JY again. I hope you found that conversation helpful. 
Like David said, you can always reach out to him if you have more questions. He will also be holding hour-long Q&As until the end of the year, that's 2018, on a weekly basis, mostly Wednesdays, uh, where you can come and ask him your questions yourself. And as always, if you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't like the podcast, please tell us why. This is a new project for us, and we want to do it well. You can reach us with your comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms at podcast at sevensage.com. Thank you.